Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And we once upon a time started this podcast with uh, Mr. Larry King joining us, and he will once more be joining us momentarily. But, but first, I have a Mr. Rob Barnes with me, uh, who you all have heard from before uh, regarding both the Brooklyn and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And, and Rob, I, I greatly appreciate you joining me. One thing you and Larry certainly have in common is that, uh, that you're both still Dodger fans after all this time. Well, yes, I am. And you know what? I can do a Larry King impersonation if you, if you like me to. Hello, you know, I can do that. If you oh, my <laughs> you know, hello. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, fake out the viewers. Right. I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to fake oh, out yeah. the, the listeners right now. But, oh, yeah. That was um, how, how have you been doing? How have you been holding up one way or the other? You know what? It's okay. You know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, we have our health. We have, at least it's not February. It's not. 10 degrees out, you know, at least you can go outside. At least you can, I'm, I'm a shorts guy. I mean, I, I'll put on shorts in beginning in like April and I'll try not to put them on until like October because I just, I just like shorts and it's at least it's that. And if, and I, I've always worked from home. So it, in some aspects, it really doesn't feel that much different. And then other aspects, it feels completely different. Right. Yeah. It, it and you know, obviously, one of those those big uh, those big differences is the fact that we have not had sports this entire time. And July Fourth, uh, this Independence Day, you know, we're always used to watching baseball. Maybe even you know, joking about how awful these these hats have become. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> that, that that was something that was glaringly missing from July Fourth. Even though we we do have an idea of when baseball is returning. Oh, most definitely. July 4th to, to, to us. I mean, our daughter was home from the city and it was just the three of us home for the weekend. It didn't really feel like a holiday. It didn't really feel like any quote unquote, anything out of the ordinary because we we're just doing what we normally do. And you're right. They know there's normally a triple header or so right with the bad hats, as you say, on the 4th and and it's right. It's not there. You can flip on, you know, you can turn on the MLB network. You can find a playoff game from 2008, but that's, you know, those, after a while, those get a little old. Right. And, and Rob, let me, uh, I'm going to have to cut you off now because we do have the man himself on the line. And that is Mr. Larry King, who needs no introduction. Mr. King, thank you again for joining us on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. I'm happy to be with you guys. I heard someone mention triple header you know i went to a triple header when i was a kid the dodgers played a triple header with the pirates in uh august mm, i forget the year 46 47 oh wow so i, used to, I went amazing. to a triple header <laughs> and you know we're we're talking right now about whether or not they're they're going to need to be scheduling these double headers uh, uh well before we go down and 
and we get into uh, Brooklyn talk, Larry, I, I want to ask you, you know, how's everything going through through all of this unprecedented times? How is how are you and your family holding up? Well, you know, my boys live with me. And um, right now I'm talking to you sitting on the roof of my building. Uh, it's an 80-degree nice day. Uh, when I had my stroke, I lost my left my feeling in my left foot. So I need to be helped around in a chair and I can walk with a walker. But other than that, I'm hanging in. Uh, you know, I, hey, it's life. I'm 86 years old. I never thought I'd met. I'm playing with uh, with a I'm playing with house money. <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. Um, That's and, what gamblers and, say so, if they're ahead. They say I'm playing right, exactly. with house money. And, and and going all the way back, and that, that's exactly where I want to start. You, you know, it's remarkable. You sound great, and, and I'm glad to hear that. Other than uh, you know, your the fact that you need a cane to get around the house, I, I'm glad to hear that you're doing well. I want to go all the way back to the 1930s in Brooklyn, and, and you know, right now as I try to figure out what I'm I'm doing for a potential uh, first season of, of writing this thing. I'm I'm I've, I'm thinking a lot about the kids of Brooklyn in in the 1930s and and certainly well, you got that. that yeah, I fall into that era, but I didn't really become a fan until uh, the 41 season. Uh, I I, so four, oh, I was not a yeah 41 when Mickey Owen dropped the third strike and of course and we lost the World Series to the Yankees. I became a fan. In and around that year, started going to games right after my father died. My cousin would take me to games, but it's the through the forties, the war years, that I was a Brooklyn Dodger fanatic. In the thirties, I, I I was not a fan. I was just hanging around. So, if we can talk about that, actually, what is your earliest memory of Brooklyn? Just Brooklyn itself, outside of the baseball. Well, Brooklyn was a culture. Brooklyn was a life. Brooklyn was a land apart when 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 for example we weren't part of New York. We were part of New York but we weren't. When you lived in Brooklyn and you went into Manhattan, you said you were going into the city. I'm going into the city today to see a movie. You never said I'm going to Manhattan. You never said I'm going to New York. Brooklyn was always an island unto itself. We always felt apart. Uh, from life, we would just had our own, our own little bailiwick. Uh, we we loved our borough. We loved we loved what it stood for. We knew that Brooklyn was something special. We knew it all the while. Uh, after my father died, I moved from uh, Bedford Stuyvesant to Bensonhurst. Had a, I had a great youth. After my father passed away, I had great friends. I went to Dodger games, went to Yankee games, went to went to the Polo Grounds. Madison Square Garden, college double headers. There's a full ranger hockey. We had a full life. Um, and it wasn't that expensive. We hung in, you know, and box bleachers at Evansfield were 50 cents. You could afford the garden for a ranger game, you could get in for 75 cents. So, how so old were you when you were? Sports was a big. I, I was nine. When my father died, mm. I was born in 1933, and he died in uh, 1943. I was nine and a half, and, and that must have been real tough for you to have a father. Very to, tough. To yeah, a, me and my, 
me and my little brother, who was three years younger, my mother never remarried, so it was very hard. Uh, we lived, we were on welfare for two years. That means we call it relief. And now they call it welfare. New York City uh, paid our rent and gave us a stipend every month for food. That was for two years until my mother was able to go back to work, and I, I, I was then 11 and a half. I took care of my little brother. So I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be poor, and being not poor is a lot better. <laughs> well said. Well said. What, what do you remember about radio from your early days? You know, of course, Red Barber started uh, broadcasting in 1939, and they talk about how you'd be able to walk through Brooklyn and not miss a pitch. Uh, but considering that you you became a media personality, what what are some of those memories you have early on about uh, well, radio? I was, very, uh, I was very I was very affected by it. I always wanted to be on the radio. I don't know where that came from, but I used to listen to the radio and then imitate radio announcers. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. I would practice. I would stand in front of a mirror and practice being a radio announcer. I would. There were some shows that had studio audiences. I would try to get over to see them all. So I was a radio freak. I listened to the low soap operas. I listened to the weekends. I listened to the quiz shows. And naturally, I listened to Mel Allen, Red Barber, Russ Hodges, and the Dodgers, the Yankees. I was Red Barber was. Uh, uh, he made Vince Scully, you know, he brought Vince Scully into broadcasting. And uh, he was the best I ever heard. Scully's second. Mm-hmm. And then there was a bunch of other guys who were real good. Joe Buck. Uh, yeah, a lot of great, a lot of great, 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 great. The best was Red Barber, in my opinion. Because Red mm-hmm. could, and Scully comes the closest, but Red could paint a picture. By that, the first time I went to Evans Field, was uh, two months after my father died, my uncle took me. And as I walked into Evansville and I saw the color green and the brown dirt and the white foul lines, I experienced something I felt I knew all along. Red had taught me that. Red brought the game into my head. It's hard to explain what a great announcer can do, but Red... Was what, and later in life, I got to work with him in Miami. I was doing sports, and he did interviews on this Channel 4 newscast in Miami. And to have him call me, you know, Larry, uh, I would have lunch with him, dinner with him, learned about things from Red Bob, the great Jackie Robinson stories. But his his ability on the air, his southern phrases, his, he, was, he was a Brooklyn loved him. You know, you know what they did in those days? You wouldn't even notice. Old Gold <laughs> sponsored the, the Dodgers. That was a tobacco cigarette. When any Dodger hit a homer, they rolled a carton of Old Golds down the screen. And they gave the carton wow. to the player who hit the homer, and it was called an Old Goldie. An Old Goldie. <laughs> the Yankees were sponsored by White Owl Cigars. They gave cigars to guys who hit homers. They had Valentine Beer sponsored the Giants. I mean, it was all they, I knew all the sponsors. I knew what they had. I just I I flooded with it, and um, I would listen to spring training games. It would be snowing in 
in Brooklyn, and I would hear Red describe what Vero Beach looked like. And uh, I remember once he deceived Stan Musial, they hit a homer into this lake, and a seagull picked up the ball, or in the lake. And Red Barber described the seagull. I mean, picture that. It's a long home run, rolled in the water, and a seagull just picked it up. I mean, that was Red. And uh, there was nobody yeah. like him. And of course, Jackie Robinson's well, a great part of the Red Barber story. He, oh, and, you know, of course, there's that, that famous story of Red. Uh, having an issue when Branch told him that that tale at uh, sitting down, and of course he went home and his wife told him to why don't you sleep on it? To which at which point Red basically you know grew as a man and realized that he just it, it I, I believe he said that you know Jackie didn't have a choice in what color he was born into, and I didn't have a choice being born into being white. Yeah, and he had a lot to do with Jackie because he. He really liked Jackie. He took to him uh, as a full athlete, treated him that way. Uh, he, were, he, were, he was one of the reasons Jackie came along faster than a lot of people would have thought was Red Barber's total support of him. And Leo DeRosha, too, to his credit, Leo DeRosha mm-hmm. was a major Robinson supporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just, you were talking about the sponsorships too, and and it's funny because last night I was watching a random Not Whole Gang clip on on the uh, and the sponsor for that particular episode was the Lincoln Savings Bank, and you know they were talking about coming down to like four or five of the branches there, and and I actually live in in Flatbush now at 34th and Snyder, and it's a Burger King now, but but. On the at the top, it says Lincoln Savings Bank, and so it's interesting you talking about all the different sponsors. Oh yeah, I knew I, I knew all the sponsors of all the shows and the daytime sponsors. Oh, hey, look, I lived, breathed, radio was my life, and of course, when television came in, I, I, after we couldn't afford initially. Later, we got a set, but uh, radio was with the announcers. Marty Glickman was the best basketball announcer ever heard. Marty Glickman, you could picture the game without being there, without having television. Marty Glickman would broadcast a basketball game. Unbelievable. He was unbelievable. And we got used to the best in New York. We got used to the best. I think one of the things I'm most thankful for is they grow up in Brooklyn. Uh, the so luck what of my you, were talk, you know, you you mentioned about uh, the Yankees and the Giants, and and one of the best things I've ever heard you say was that rooting for the Yankees was like rooting for U.S. Steel. I believe you said it for the Ghosts of Flatbush documentary. So my question for you regarding that is, uh, it it all it always seemed that the majority of Brooklyn were uh, Dodger fans, but if you could talk about right. the the dynamic of having two other teams in New York and Brooklyn specifically. Well, Willie, Mickey, and the Duke, the three best center fielders for all the Hall of Fame, all played at the same time. The Yankee, when you went to Yankee Stadium, you felt like you had to wear a shirt and tie. I was like, they were a little, oh, those were the Yankees, you know, oh, my God, pay attention, not like you riffraff from Brooklyn. 
And the polo grounds was always somewhere on the other side. You know, they were in Manhattan. It's the other side of Yankee Stadium. It's a crazy place to watch a game. But but the Yankees were, I would have to say, were hated. I I hated the Yankees. Um, and I, where did all that hate come from? Why did I hate them so much? I mean, I hated them. Hated the Giants, too. It was a, it was a remarkable time. I, I tell you guys, living in that time, I am so thankful to have been able to grow up in that era at that time. Even though the saddest day of my life was Bobby Thompson's homer, <laughs> it's equal to my father's death. That's how deep it had been. Uh, and later I would have a, a big dinner in New York where I had Thompson and Branca on the stage at the same time. And uh, I brought them up to the stage and looked in Bobby Thompson's eyes and said, I still hate you. <laughs> and they got to be great friends. Uh, and we later learned that they stole the signals. Yeah, the Giants, so, the Frank signed an what, autographed picture of me saying the Giants stole the pennant. So, so uh, within the context of the recent sign-stealing scandal, you know, people were calling for the World Series to be stripped. Uh, um, in regards to the idea, if, if they were to do that, you'd probably have to take and it away from the Giants. What, what is your opinion on, on uh, you know, retroactively doing something like that? Well, the Giants would have to go back too far to take it away. And actually, if they knew it at the time, they would have stripped them. But I would have stripped Houston. I don't know if I'd have given it to the Dodgers, but I went to every one of those games. I went to Houston. I went, of course, to the home games. And I thought something funny was going on. I, I said to my friend, you know, their, their timing... Kershaw's pitches like they know what's coming and they knew what was coming uh, I, I felt very bad when all that came out so I just stripped them of the title but I would not have given it to the Dodgers because you never know who would have won but I certainly would have taken the right. title away from them well that yeah it's, it's uh, interesting to comp- contemplate and I think it's even more magnified in this day and age with this, like the Twitter first you know um Mr. Mr. King, I, you're a very busy man, of course, and I, I, I want to yeah, let you go. Uh, but let me – I want to uh, – we have uh, Mr. Rob Barnes, who's also a Los Angeles Dodgers fan as well. Uh, before, before I let you go, let me uh, pass it over to him to ask a question. Mr. King, it's an honor to talk to you, and for years thank I've you, loved watching – thank you. I've loved watching you behind home plate at Dodgers Stadium on the broadcast. And – Seeing everything that you've witnessed, and you talked about being so fortunate to be have been alive and grown through, gone through everything at Brooklyn. What was your first World Series game you attended? Did you attend any at Ebbets Field before the move? Nope, I couldn't afford it. Okay. The first World Series game I attended was um, the Yankees in Atlanta, I think. I don't remember. I, but I didn't get to go at the great times, uh, those great days and the halcyon days. I unfortunately mm. couldn't afford it. And when wow. I could afford it, I didn't live in the city where it was played. Well, right. there you go. Yeah. It was a tough. I got to run, guys, but I want to tell you. Absolutely. Reliving, you so reliving much. the old it, days it, in it, Brooklyn it, has it, been it, magical. 
Absolutely. We'll talk Thanks. to you again. Thank you so much, Mr. King. You got it. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Take care. So, Rob, what a thrill it is to talk to it Mr. Really. King. You know, it's like wow. I, I know earlier I, I said Larry, but, like, it's hard to, <laughs> you know, you go back, you're like, well, Mr. King, Mr. King, I, I, I yeah. <laughs> it's, what what are some of the first things that you, you you think of as you were listening to him? What what are some of the things that came to your brain? Just think, you know, having read the history of the Dodgers so much and hearing it from a firsthand observer, seeing, uh, I mean, this is he he was firsthand. He he, he was, became a fan in '41 when Mickey Owen dropped the dropped the third strike, which started the whole rabbit hole of losing to the Yankees over and over again. Who knows if. If Mickey doesn't drop that ball, who knows what happens? Do they go on and win in 41? Yeah. And are they, quote, unquote, cursed after that and go on to lose another, what, five times before they finally break through in 55? Does that change the whole thing? Does it change the whole, uh, you know, how karma? Is it I, karma? I, I, there's, so many, there's so many different ways that it could have unfolded. I mean, you know, part of the, the you know, researching this entire story of the years that we've talked about is trying to figure out how it gets from basically from Ebbets building Ebbets Field to selling mm-hmm. half of it to, mm-hmm. to uh, you know, the McKeevers keeping 25 for family, not being able to, to handle it. And then eventually um, it, it goes, you know, basically the way I'm reading it is McLaughlin wanted Walter O'Malley to pay a little bit more attention to the Dodger books. And then when Branch Rickey came aboard, that's when it all got put. They figured out the Ebbets uh, shares. They sold the Ebbets shares. Mm-hmm. Walter O'Malley got a loan to buy the shares. So it's just it. like the right. way this all unfolds. And I mean, of course, like you also have to have the the Branch Rickey uh, Zeckendorf moment when he leaves oh, yeah. the Dodgers. Yes. Um, yes. But but it it it's fa- it's fascinating stuff. And he was talking about going back to 1941 with. You know, I, I didn't. He mentioned DeRocher, and I didn't uh, when it came to Jackie Robinson. And I didn't. Um, I, I at some point I think I wanted to go down uh, the rabbit hole with him about Leo DeRocher. Uh, but what's interesting about that specific moment was that everything I'm, I'm reading about Leo DeRocher during that Game Four, during that World Series, was that he kind of just mm-hmm. let it all unfold. At, at once that once the Yankees got on board, like like he didn't yeah. he probably let let um Casey stay out there a little too long, um and, and it, it seemed like he he was you know a deer in the headlights it it seems and when you look at the fact that he only won world one World Series as a as a manager, you right. you wonder about these little moments and and it makes you want to dive even deeper as to what prevented did was it stubbornness what prevented him from having more success not only with the Dodgers but overall in his career that's you know that's that's a very valid point and 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 what stuck in my mind when you're talking about that is leaving Hugh Casey in too long I really think well this is a whole a whole era thing pitchers were just left in too long back then the Dodgers in general left pitchers in too long they were known for putting you know there weren't pitch counts back then pitchers were in throwing a, a gazillion innings a year and blowing out arms, Carl Spooner was another guy who was one of these King Carl, they call him. He was supposed to be the next great thing, and he blew out after a bit. Ken Lehman was another good one. So uh, pitchers being left in too long, right? When something bad happens, you don't see immediately shouldn't, the manager should be coming out of, the, out, out of the bullpen. 
you know, in 51 when they were at, at game, game three at, at uh, the polo grounds, uh, when Branca comes in, you know, is, uh, was dressing out there. Was he talking to him? Was he out there saying, you know, here's the situation. Don't do this to him. Cause you don't, cause Thompson had homered off him in game one. So I don't know. Right. The manager handling the in pitching modern, is, in modern is, day. What, what's yeah. interesting too, specifically that moment was that, uh, I think Thompson said something like they had been getting me out uh, with that pitch the whole season, the pitch yeah. that he event he turned on. Um, but, but, Oh, there was, there was something. Oh, I, it's just so many different things that we need so many different directions that we we can go. And I know that I blunted on one of them, but the, uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, one of the things that when he was talking about radio and how he, when he first got to Ebbets field, it, he, he, it, it was familiar to him already because of Red Barber. And I, I thought about you yes. in yeah. that this was how you became a Dodgers fan was, was really because of the radio, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, let's, hearing a game or two, you know, I mean, like, like I've told you, you know, if you're, everybody is our member, you know, I became a fan by my dad working with Bill Singer. So I got to go to a couple of games when he came here to Chicago because I'm a Chicagoan. Well, I'm a suburban, you know, there's a whole whatever. I'm a suburban Chicago uh, kid and, and adult now. So being able to see him once or twice a year, p- picking up a box score uh, two or three days later in the Chicago Tribune, trying to recreate that box score in my brain, hearing a game once a week on maybe if they're on the game of the week, catching a game on the radio. Oh, yeah. And, ra- and, and as Mr. King said, too, about radio, picturing, uh, uh, painting that picture so eloquently as, as Red Bar- Barber, I'm sure he did. I never heard him call a game. I've heard bits on, on, on uh, courtings, and obviously Vince Scully, his mentee, was able to do so perfectly for the 67 years he did it. So it's wonderful. And we actually have a, another caller on the line from a 916 area code, which I believe is California. Hello. You are here on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Hello. Hi there. Who are we talking with? Uh, 916 area code. Uh, this is Phil. Hello, In Phil. Fact, How are you? Are, 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 seeing that you're from, that you have a, a California uh, call, I'm guessing, are you a, right. a Dodgers fan? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, I was born in New York, but we left in 1949, so uh, never really had a chance. But when I moved out to L.A. and saw him at the Coliseum, I, I just became a huge, huge Dodger fan. Anyway, my question, and it's it's kind of bizarre, and I, Larry King would have to be somebody to answer it. I've, I've wondered about this for, I, I'm not kidding, 30, 40 years, and, and wondered why. Uh, something at Ebbets Field was was done the way it was done, and I've never been able to find out. I've I've written to the Dodger historians. I've gone online. I've talked to Ebbets Field fans through the years, and I'm almost 70 years old now, and I, I'm just trying to figure out why the heck this was done at Ebbets Field, why it was done that way. Um, and my question is, why was the right field fence done at that that angle, that that concave angle, uh, about halfway up. If, if 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 you think about it from, from right field all the way to almost right center and part of the scoreboard. And I've read everything, I've looked back at plans and I think it was done in the thirties, but I 
I know ballparks were built kind of like Wrigley Field, you know, with strange little quirks, but I just can't believe that Charlie Evans one day just said, okay, we're going to build this right field wall at an angle so it can take crazy hops or something. And I've never had anybody answer the question. Well, I'm going to try my best from what I know from the history of it. So I'm looking at a photo right now uh, during the era with Schaefer beer at the top of the scoreboard. Um, So I I can't, I forget exactly what this was like when Ebbets field was first built, but the, the whole grandstand in the center field was completely, it was a completely new addition in 1932. Um, So then that, that side on center field and left field used to be bigger. Um, and in general, I, I mean, the, you know, they, they, just, they, I think because of uh, uh, political connections, they were able to reroute the street uh, uh, to basically be right behind this new uh, 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 grandstand, this new upper deck grandstand that was built in 32. And so I think a lot of the quirks that you, you discussed, didn't really get involved until 1932. And Rob, you, you, you're right. also a good historian on all this stuff. If you can uh, answer some. Uh, I, I really think you're on the right track. I'd never heard anything about the street being rerouted, but the fact you look at the old pictures and you see the old pictures before the grandstand went in, I believe you're right. I believe the right field wall is different. I do. Uh, so if they come in and they're re and they're basically re-engineering the whole back, you know, the right field and out of the park, something has to happen. And why that con that concrete came in there, that's, <laughs> I don't know, maybe just playing, you know, I think playing with someone's mind, but you know, that's just, that's just a silly answer, but it's just, it's a great question. Yeah. It's, the pinball, it yeah, the pinball before the 30s. Of yeah. baseball. Sorry, Phil, go ahead. Uh, yeah, it wasn't there before the 30s. And then I guess they remodeled Emmett Field in, in, like you said, 31 or 32. And in all the pictures I've looked at, I'm, I've seen this thing, and I go, there's no other ballpark that has anything like that. Why would they just, out of the clear blue, put up this 45-degree angle cement you know, edifice that goes halfway up the wall and, and even into – even in the right center where the where the scoreboard was, and I that's why I was thinking maybe Larry King, but he's there's no way to, for me to get a hold of him there's, unless I go yeah. to a book signing or something like that. And I figured, but nobody knows. I I talked to the Dodger historian, and I doesn't have a clue. He said that's just the way ballparks were built. I've talked to some old Dodgers, and nobody knows. Nobody knows why it was done. Well, I appreciate so, you. Uh, uh, you know, charging the the idea up into my head to at least like from a um, a screenwriting perspective. <laughs> it's like yeah, once I'm, as I uh, have this un, you know unfold, I, I can continue to try to get as deep and as much depth as possible with what this story is all about. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I would figure I, I've been on uh, obviously some of the Evans Field sites. And I figured somebody in, you know, Brooklyn that's, that was there in the 40s and 30s would have an idea why why they did it that way. But 
No. Well, I'll also no, uh, we uh, we from time to time have the Brooklyn Borough historian Ron Schweiger on, who was actually on the yeah. inaugural episode with Larry King. And I can certainly yeah. pose this question, considering that he, I believe, he has at least a replica of the blueprints, because I believe the the Ebbetsville yeah. blueprints are now in possession of the Historical Society, the Brooklyn Historical Society. So I'll I'll, I'll yeah, about I, that for you, Phil. Does Does he have a uh... Uh, an email, or is, does he give that out, yeah. or do you know? Or? Yeah, I, I I can certainly inquire, um, and I, I'm pretty uh, easy to get in touch with on the the Facebook podcast. How how did you uh, um, come to listen to our show today? Which uh, uh, Twitter or Facebook? Uh, Facebook, off the. Uh, okay, so if uh, you go to uh, the Bedford and Sullivan Brooklyn page. Uh, you should be able to message me, and I, I, I get all those on the phone, and we can we can uh, work with uh, communicating with each other off the air via that. So I appreciate okay, that, Phil. The, Thank you. What's the uh, what's the name that it's under the, the Facebook? Oh, it's it's uh, Bedford and Sullivan Brooklyn. That is the uh, the page that I run that basically just. You know, oh, from a visual okay. and audible perspective, yeah. keeps the audience active uh, researchers. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So yeah, All yeah. Right. Just message me there, and and we'll uh, we'll take it from there. Maybe find the find the answer to the mystery. Thank you so much for your time. I know it's kind of out of the. Thank you, Phil. Uh, we appreciate it. Stay, stay okay. healthy. All right. Stay healthy out there with everything going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. One day at a time. Thank you very much. One day at a time. Thank you. All right. Bye. So, Rob, we're 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 going to uh, uh, get to the tail end of the show, and you know how we always like to do the final word on here. Um, and with baseball on its way back, I, I I figure go ahead with with your final word, maybe uh, in regards to that. Okay. Thank you. Uh, baseball. You know, a couple of things we've seen. You know, a couple of uh, things I've seen online. MLB. Uh, brought a, a X amount of players back from the Dominican Republic, but I thought I read somewhere they did not test them before they brought them back. I mean, seriously, really? Why can't you do that correctly? Secondly, uh, completely 180-degree <laughs> tangent, Formula One auto racing, my wife and I enjoy that. We watch it. They returned to Austria last week for their first time, for their first race of the year. They tested, uh, I can't remember the number, but, Zero cases, absolutely zero cases. And they're able to get their bubble down. Uh, I'm watching, there's this basketball tournament right now. It's called the Basketball Tournament. It's a bunch of uh, teams that are loosely based on colleges. And they're alums of these schools. They're uh, all quarantined in Columbus, Ohio. They have zero cases. They're completely locked down. They're able to, like, high-five and do everything and not be worried about getting touched. So why can't baseball do it? And will baseball be able to keep it down and be able to have the season go on? Because all it takes is for a couple of uh, young 20-somethings to go out and, you know, and get the virus somewhere. So I just hope and pray we can at least see some baseball because I know everybody that is a fan of yours is going to be looking forward to this. Yes, and you know, I uh, 
the more that one of the things that as I go through this and thinking about, uh, uh, you know, presenting this from a, a dramatic narrative perspective, um, you know, trying to remind everybody what baseball means to America, you know, because we, we have really taken sports and baseball for granted in many ways over the course of our lives. And, and uh, you know, I'm just I sometimes when I'm driving around the city and I'm thinking about what we're currently experiencing and I, I go back to how in denial I was leading up to everything shutting down that like and I, I'm sure other people feel this this way in many many facets that leading up to the entire thing like and everybody people were you know slowly getting more serious about it but i I, i'm just like trying to put myself into that perspective and and everything's changed so much like you you we would have never thought a year ago that this is even close to something we were going to have to deal with and somebody was just it was either sports radio or something you know here in new york talking about how we're coming up on the anniversary of the home run derby with pete alonzo I, it's just like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> that would be uh, going on right now. It, it, you, you bring up a lot of great points. Well, thanks. But it's, yeah, you're right. You, you, t- you take it for granted, right? It's, it's always been there. You know, I don't know. I don't, you remember the strike of 94. I, I don't know if you remember. I don't you know if you remember the strike of 81. When it's gone, it's like, bam, they turn the, the, the switch and it's gone. And everybody's like, wait a minute, where'd it go? And now it's like, and now we're kind of living through the whole thing. And we've got the whole collective bargaining thing coming up and what's going to happen when it's over at the end of next year. And so why can't we, you know, they, they just need to right. get along yeah. and just realize that this is entertainment. You know, these guys, are it, it was the combination, it was the combination of the flu team 20, as well as the, the collective yeah. issues of 1994. That's basically what we were just yeah. dealing with with baseball. Right. And and my you know exactly. it, and and they they seem to be in denial. You know, other people are much more pessimistic about the future of baseball than I am because I I I'm sitting here thinking that like regardless of what television anybody's watching, regardless of what anybody is going on to YouTube, there still seems to be some sort of baseball foundation somewhere out there whether it's from kids playing it or whether it's from, from parents passing it down generations. But there's people concerned and, and, and to the point that they think baseball has way too much hubris about their position in, this, in, 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 current, in, in 2020 America. Yeah. I mean, it's – oh, yeah. Oh, I think, you're, I think you're spot on with that, with them just being right. Okay, we're baseball. You know, it doesn't matter what we do because we're baseball. You know, so – Everybody just needs to, you know, wear a mask, take a breath, take a deep breath, and realize that it's that it's serious. We gotta, you know, we gotta just do whatever we can to help our fellow human being. It's it's something none of us have ever lived through before, and hopefully we'll never have to do it again. And just do our best and struggle and do your best. Hold on tight, and hopefully come out good on the other side. That is right. It's the only thing that we can hope for right now, and hopefully we get some baseball going. But uh, in the meantime, I'm going to keep uh, keep this, this research churning, and I appreciate you joining us today, Mr. Barnes, and I appreciate Mr. King joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure, Sam. My pleasure, Sam. Absolutely. Great talk with you anytime. I'm always available. Thanks, buddy. Excellent, excellent. And thank you all for listening to us on the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast. Uh, if you're in the New York area, stay dry out there. Uh, But for everybody, stay healthy and strong. We'll catch you next week. Take care.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.